Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome to the midweek edition of Legal AF. This is all of the legal and political news that you can handle and all the legal and political news that's fit to podcast. I'm Michael Popak. And I'm Karen Friedman Agnifilo. And Karen, we're going to do, we just figured it out. We're going to do three G's today, rip from the headlines. Literally one is like from today, from Wednesday, we're going to do what happened in the Ghislaine, Ghislaine Maxwell case, that's our first G, uh, related to, to juror number 50 and her attempts to obtain a new trial. We're going to talk about poor Brittany Griner. That's our second G. She of the WNBA all-star fan and also, unfortunately, a, a, a person who plays in a Russian league and has been trapped in Russia now on a, on a what it sounds like a trumped up drug charge. And our third G is, again, right from today, the jury has come back in the Guy Refit, the first Gen 6 criminal trial. We have a verdict after four hours of deliberation, and we're going to talk about that, too. But let's kick off with each other. How are you doing? Doing all right. I, yeah. uh, I appeared in federal court yesterday on a motion to dismiss. I had oral arguments, which is only my second time ever in federal court and on a civil matter. So it's all new to me, but I'm enjoying it. Yeah. So you and I, this just again to reinforce how few talking heads really have a practice. Today, I was in, I argued at the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in person, live, partially with a mask and partially without, on behalf of one of our clients, John Melendez, against Sirius XM. And uh, the day before, I filed two federal briefs back to back in Nevada on another case in the gaming space. We are practitioners, we do this for a living. Um, if I could figure out a way to do podcasting for a living, you and I have joked, <laughs> I would. I would because it's so much better. <laughs> and I like my clothes so much better on podcast day. <laughs> I know you don't have to wear a suit. Yeah. Or, you know, listen, for all you know, it's just a sweater today. So here we oh, go. God. Let's talk. Let's talk about Ghislaine Maxwell and what happened uh, with Judge Nathan. And I want to ask you a few questions about it. First, I'll frame it. Then I want to ask you questions. So juror number 50, who we've now heard about for the last two and a half months, um, was on the jury, uh, was part of the jury that convicted Ghislaine Maxwell, seven out of eight counts, um, including sex trafficking, which she's looking at a lot of time for that. And then and then did what I guess some jurors do. They go to the media and gave a lot of interviews and signed a lot of book deals uh, with uh, uh, he's from originally from London. So it was with some British papers. And in it, he said he was a victim of sexual abuse himself several times. And um, that was not disclosed at all in the jury questionnaire, which is part of the process that we've talked about in other episodes of Legal AF, the voir dire process of jury selection, which requires jurors to be honest in the answers to their questionnaire and in the answers to the questions asked by the lawyers and, and or the judge during the process. He was not either because he was dishonest, lazy, as he admitted today, or something else. And the judge used her time today, and she was the only one that cross-examined him in response to the motion for new trial by the defense uh, to get to the bottom of why 
Scotty Gregg, who was, he's identified himself by his first and middle name, why he did not disclose that he himself was a victim of child sexual abuse. Now, here's a question I have for you. It's a couple of questions. Why, is, why are the only questions she's asking of him about why he lied on the, on the form and not about at all, in fact, she admonished him not to speak about jury deliberations? Why doesn't she care at the new trial level when she's considering the motion, if anything that he said or did in jury deliberation might have adversely impacted that process. Why do you think? So jury deliberations have always been sacrosanct. It's the sort of this uh, this bubble that you aren't supposed to have anything intrude in that process and the deliberation process. And so the judge was very careful not to intrude in the deliberation process of the Guillen Maxwell trial. But the questions ahead of time, voir dire, as, as you said, is all about trying to pick a fair and impartial jury of your peers who can uh, who can listen to um, the evidence and bring in their life experiences, of course, and their common sense and render a verdict that's consistent with the facts and the law. And in the voir dire process, it's really important that the lawyers get to know anything about you that could impede in your ability to be fair and impartial, because obviously uh, it, it wouldn't be fair to the defense or the prosecution, for that matter, to have someone who can't be fair and impartial. And during this jury selection process or this voir dire process, uh, Lawyers have a certain number of challenges. There's two kinds of challenges and challenges mean you can say, I'm going to bump this person off the jury. I, you know, you bring in panels of, of dozens and dozens and dozens of people. And in high profile cases, sometimes it's hundreds of people because people will just say, I can't sit for a really long time or I heard of this case and I can't possibly be fair. So usually the, in a big high profile case, we'll bring in hundreds of people and they'll pre-screen them. And they usually pre-screen them through things like jury questionnaires. And that's what, uh, that's what happened in this particular matter. And as I said, there are two types of challenges, both for cause challenges and preemptory challenges. And for cause challenges, there's an unlimited number of those. It just means you can't be fair and impartial. And uh, therefore, for cause, the judge will say, as a matter of law, you are not qualified to serve on this jury. But then there's some preemptory challenges. And in it, the number of preemptory challenges depends on the jurisdiction you're in, on the charges you're facing, on the level of crime it is, et cetera. But in New York State, for example, you sometimes can get up to 20 preemptory challenges. Now, you can't say you can't discriminate using your preemptory challenges. So, for example, you can't say, I don't want any black people on my jury. So I'm going to uh, bounce all the black people from the jury. You know, there's things like that that you can't do as a prosecutor. And so and there's challenges, but pretty much otherwise, your preemptory challenges are ones that you can use any way that you want, as long as it's not discriminatory. Now, the reason I, I bring that up in this case, and the reason I think this is significant is the questions, just to answer your circling back to your question, Popak, the questions the judge was asking uh, juror number 50 today all had to do with his motivation, his intention, his whether or not he could be fair, because she was trying to determine whether or not it 
he was would have been challenged for cause, meaning disqualified as a juror, because there's a Supreme Court case that lays out the standard. It's from 1984 that lays out the standard here on on what would disrupt this and and give and give her a new trial. And it would have to be something that goes to the heart of uh, that goes to the heart of the fairness of the matter. It was McDonough Power versus Greenwood it's from 1984. So if he was mistaken, though, honest the way he said he was and the, and the judge credits that um, it might not get it might not get reversed. But if it's something that goes to the essential fairness of the trial and and, so, and, and if he couldn't be fair and impartial and therefore be um, be able to have a four cause challenge, I think they'd be in trouble here. But my prediction and, and I want to hear your thoughts, of course, uh, my prediction is based on what he said today, it does not get overturned. What do you think? What are your thoughts? Let's unpack some of it. So, um, wow, I've never had 20 peremptory challenges. I've had six at, at, at most. Have you ever and tried a murder case in New no, York State? No, I, no, I don't know. I'm saying that's, that, yeah. that's, just, that's just a lot. And um, even though you're not supposed to use your peremptories to remove people of color and otherwise, we know it happens. And we know that all of a sudden, you know, maybe not from the prosecutor level, but I've certainly seen it in civil cases where you suddenly have an all white jury because of the use of that process. But I guess the question I asked was, she's not asking, Judge Nathan's not cross-examining this witness about the deliberation process, which I thought, I you know, one of the things that he said is that when he was in deliberations, he told the witnesses, he told the other jurors while they were deliberating, this is all public record now, that um, when there was a um, expert that was put on about repressed memory, and the ability of a sex abuse victim to recover memories, he used his own personal experience in the room and talked about it to bolster the credibility, if you will, of the witness that was on there for the um, for the prosecution. And this does not seem to be at all the focus of what the judge is going to grant or deny the motion for new trial on. She doesn't, maybe because it's sacrosanct, maybe because she doesn't think that's where she needs to go. She's going to the Sixth Amendment right to a fair and impartial trial, not a perfect trial, but a fair and impartial trial to determine, as you said, whether even if he disclosed that he was uh, a sex, uh, that he was the victim as a child of sex abuse, does that mean that sex abuse victims and sex cases, sex trafficking cases can't ever be jurors? And the answer to that is no, they can be jurors if they can be fair and impartial. If they can't be, then for cause, as you said, if they say, listen, I had this traumatic thing, terrible thing happened to me. I could not sit on this jury and be fair and impartial. I'd be thinking about my own past and my own thought process. Okay, that is a four cause, which which lawyers like you and I um, are happy about because I don't have to use, if I have a limited number of peremptories, I don't have to use my peremptory challenges because the judge has just taken one juror off the, off the block without me having to use it. And so that strategy and gaming that goes on between defense and prosecution or plaintiff and defense lawyers, who's going to use the peremptory? Who's, you know, I want to get to juror number six, a potential juror number six. So How do I... It's like yeah. chess. How do I get there? Oh, you, even, I don't... you can even negotiate sometimes, right? Oh, yeah. you, you, with yeah. the part with your with your I... adversary and you say, OK, I'll agree to unseating this person if you'll seat yeah. that person. Well, well, you just mentioned a good thing. There's also backstrikes, which means you can strike, but then you can take it back and negotiate. It's a whole you know, we make it sound like it's 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 just this run of the mill, you know, ordering like you're at the deli. It's not. It's a lot of 
a lot of this going back and forth, maybe less question. so. I have on, one question for you sure. on the challenges really quick. Do sure. you think it would matter if the lawyers, if the defense attorney in the Maxwell case had run out of peremptory challenges and therefore, because I, I was just curious, because let's yeah. say it wouldn't have been a four cause challenge because he did say today under oath that he could be fair and impartial. So that knocks him out of the four cause yeah. category. What if they had run out of challenges? And so it would have been harmless, harmless error, if you will, analysis or moot. Like what what is what do you think about well, that? If they if he was up early enough that they had a peremptory, but they, I think they have to go the next step, which is the way you framed it, which is. We would have we would have removed him, but th- removing a juror or one or two, that's not fair and impartial issues. You know, I haven't gotten the perfect jury. You get the jury that you choose. You get the jury that's left to you after all of these challenges and this checkerboard of challenges and uh, and the judges involved. And this is your jury. And the question is, are they fair and impartial? So they're not going to be able to argue, and I doubt that they will, that, oh, he would have not been in there and I would have had, the, you know, the postal worker, you know, one next to him. And that would have been better for us. That's not that's not Sixth Amendment. So, you know, you're right. I think I think at the end, if this is the focus and not on his outsized influence on jury deliberation, which it seems to be based on the questioning, I think this new trial goes down in flames as a motion. And we'll have to see what the what the Second Circuit does. So, so you, you know? think so you think that gets a reverse and I think it doesn't get no, reversed. No, oh. no. I think the motion goes down in flames. I think it does. not. Oh, oh not, the motion goes down. In yeah, flames. it's not okay. it's not successful. So you and yeah, I, I don't think in, it's in successful agreement. either. So no. do you know who do you know who was his lawyer? Uh, Todd Spodak, your favorite yep. lawyer from Anna Delvey. <laughs> Seems <laughs> who, like everything we talk about is related, right? Yeah. Although I don't want to disappoint you, but go online and look at his picture versus the actor that played it. I know. I, I checked. <laughs> they, they look slightly different. So, yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, Todd, I'm sure Todd's a nice person. Um, yeah. no, but I'm, he should I'm be hoping thrilled. I'm hoping Amal Clooney plays me, <laughs> I was gonna in, say. In, you know, in the movie, in the in the movie <laughs> version of my life. <laughs> Todd Spodak should be thrilled by the casting in the uh, in the inventing I Anna. So I saw I saw, by yeah. the way, also that the U.S. attorney, Damian Williams, mm-hmm. uh, actually was in court today, which shows how important and significant yeah, this hearing was. U.S. attorney. So he's not trying the case, but he is the U.S. attorney for the district. Yeah. So yeah. that just that signals how important yeah. this matter yeah. is for, for the office and signals to the judge that this office is taking it seriously. And and not to say she's not going to rule a certain way because she's got U.S. attorney sitting there, but she knows it's serious. Plus, let's be frank. She wants to get out of here and get to the Second Circuit where she's she's waiting to be confirmed. So let's move on to our second G. We're making we're making great time here. Let's move on to our second G, which is going to be after we're done with that one, one that you and I talked about offline that you're very interested in. So my Poor Brittany Griner, who this is one a tw- captured my heart, I yeah. have to say, go yeah. on 12, 12 time all star. She's LGBTQ. She and her wife uh, were there. And the and the and sort of the dirty underbelly of women professional sports is that they can't make a living in the United States. Um, the U.S. soccer team, Ben and I talked about on a prior podcast last week, you know, just entered into a historic landmark settlement to get twenty two million dollars which to any billionaire is, is a rounding error into a fund so they can use it to equalize their pay. And here you have, and I didn't really, I don't really follow the WNBA that much. So I wasn't aware that if you're a star in the WNBA and your salary is capped at $200,000, yeah, $228,000 right, is the cap. Le, LeBron James is making $48 million a year. So just, okay. So 20, 
he wouldn't even miss if somebody took from him $200,000, he wouldn't even notice it. Okay. That's how much they're getting paid to do the same job that the men are doing because there's not enough marketing and money in, in, in the WNBA. It's always been seen as sort of a backwater sport. So what, so what do stars do that want to, you know, make a living and maximize their earning potential for this talent that they have? They go to Russia. Uh, and they go to Turkey and they go to Greece, but Russia and apparently the team that Brittany has been playing with or for for the last eight years and bringing home the championships for them as as well as bringing home the championships for the U.S. teams that she plays for is a team called uh, Ikat or Ikat UMM in a city near Siberia of all places called Yekaterinburg. So they pl- she plays for the local and why who cares because uh, Putin. You might have heard you heard of Putin, everybody. Putin is really good friends with the copper and zinc mining magnet who owns that team. And they just he's able to lavish million dollar salaries and private apartments and chauffeurs. Is a magnet different than an oligarch? Just curious. Yeah, it used to be a magnet and now it's an oligarch. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> magnet sounds like Thurston Howell, the yeah, third on yeah, exactly. Gilligan's Island. I can't keep it so, track. Right. It sounds like, you know, a guy with an ascot, you know, and a by the pipe. way, you're date, you're, you're aging us by talk, uh, no, talking always, about Gilligan's I, Island. I love doing that. That's what I, <laughs> I get up in the morning saying, how can I age? me?" <laughs> so the, the oligarch, uh, the, uh, part of the kleptocracy that is, is Russia is able, you know, and, and they are, Brittany is the recipient of it. Why are we talking so much about Brittany Griner? Because she had the misfortune of having to return to the league after a mid midwinter break from New York back to Siberia, passing through Moscow and her and her luggage tipped off the drug dogs at the airport in Moscow. If you, be- if you believe that story. Be- well, I, b- I believe the story. I don't believe that she was she's a drug mule. Did she have is it possible that she had a vape pen that had some hash in it? Maybe. I mean, that or pot or marijuana? Is she carrying bundles and bales of, of, of pot through customs at the public airport in Moscow? I doubt it. The only, but, the only reason I, I'm, sus- yeah. I'm just suspect of that sure. is, you know, January 23rd, the State Department issued a warning to United States citizens saying, don't travel to Russia, uh, saying that U.S. citizens are going to be potentially the target of arbitrary enforcement of, of the law. And, you know, I think I think intelligence officials have their ears on the ground and they know when stuff's going down and things are happening and they warn people not to go. But as you said, you know, poor Brittany, who, you know, I I didn't know anything about this before this story, but it really sort of captured my heart a few days ago. And I I started kind of researching Um, the average WNBA salary is between 75 and a hundred thousand dollars a year. Whereas the average NBA, the men basketball teams is $7.7 million a year. That's, that's 10 times the amount. And that's for the guy that sits on the bench and never gets in the game. Exactly. And the NBA owns half the WNBA. Yeah. So if they, if they could have, yes, they may not make as much money or pack the stadiums, but if they cared and believed in pay, um, pay parity, they would pay them a living wage and they wouldn't have to travel to places like Siberia and be put in a situation where she's LGBTQ. That that is not that that which people is against get, the law. In yeah, Russia. 
Exactly. And to put her in that position, I, I'm just, I'm really appalled. Yeah. And I, I hope that this is that I hope the NBA comes out and does the right thing and well, starts to pay the women of the WNBA a, a salary. It doesn't have to be exactly the same, but something clo- coming close to what they deserve. She's a, as you said, she's a two-time Olympic gold medalist. She's a, you know, a champion who's, you know, I don't know anything about sports, so I can't rattle off no, her statistics, she, but she's, she's certainly two-time impressive. WNBA champion, seven-time all-star, but here's the issue. So let's say she had the vape pen in there. She had it. We know that she had to be in Russia because her league was starting up again after a winter break. The good news for our listeners and followers is that the entire rest of the WNBA who play in Russia have all been successfully extracted and removed from Russia, except for poor Brittany, who, by the way, got arrested in the middle of February. And you and I and the rest of the listeners didn't find out about it until a week ago. So this poor person has been sitting in a jail in detention for for three weeks. I don't know what was so slow. The the people around her are not doing her, unless they felt like because of the Ukraine thing, they did not want to publicize it. They must have made a strategic decision that they wanted to sort of keep her under cover of darkness. That's what I think. Because normally you'd be like, yeah, free Britney and let's get Britney. And and here's the problem. I know. The, yeah, the we problem, should we should we should we should reignite the free bit now that Britney Spears has has yeah, another um, one. has got. But now that she is no longer under, you know, the hostage of yeah. her father, the free Britney hashtag, we should turn it over to Britney, to yeah. Britney Griner. And here's the problem. The problem is that the, that the diplomatic channels between the U.S. and Russia are non-existent at the current time, which exactly. means that probably a third party, maybe in the sports world, maybe who straddles, you know, somebody in the NBA, somebody, you know, some former senator, some, you know, Russian American business person is going to have to broker a deal to get Brittany out because otherwise, from a legal process, she's looking at ten years. And just to give an example that, you know, you and I hadn't heard about, but now, of course, we're hearing about it while we're talking about Brittany, um, a U.S. female Israeli American Jewish backpacker named Nama Isaacar in in, uh, 2019 got caught with a small amount of marijuana, I don't know, a joint or two in, in in a small regional airport in Moscow. She was sentenced to nine years. She only got out after nine months because they gave her a um, uh, not a cop, maybe a commutation of her sentence only because the at the pre the president of Israel at the time, Bibi Netanyahu, uh, was in good good standing with Putin and was able to negotiate a deal, and she was able to get out after nine months. Otherwise, she was looking, she was already sentenced to nine years. You know, this will be an inner, and you know what's going to happen. Putin's going to use her as a political prisoner, Brittany, right. um, in order to use her as trade bait. Yeah, she's a some, high, pro, for, she's a high, yeah, high, high yeah. profile hostage. Talk about wrong place, wrong time. Our I know, hearts go out I know. to her. My, yeah. And you know, the or, thing is, she, she was open about struggling with mental health. Yeah. I, I, you know, she, she was very open about that and very public about it. And I, it breaks yeah. my heart for her. And I, I want to send her support and love and, and raise awareness. I mean, look, I, I think you're right. I think they wanted to keep this low profile to see if they could just get her out and not have yeah. her become a pawn to negotiate, yeah. you know, in this horrible, um, high, you know, yeah. high stakes situation that but we're it's in three right weeks. now. Now it's three I weeks. Know. I know. And she's, so, and she's still stuck there. But look, everybody's out. Her wife got out. And there were other WNBA players. I mean, I don't know. They were sort of in a bubble. But, you know, LGBTQ status is not only not recognized in Russia, it is illegal. 
in many ways. And a lot of these women are married to other WNBA players or other, or other same sex people. And, um, I'm glad we got them out, um, but now we got to we got to put a lot of effort on Brittany and you and I will continue to follow that story as we move to our third and last G for the midweek edition of Legal AF. Guy Reffitt, who um, Ben and I picked it up with our Saturday podcast talking about the first Jan 6 trial. For those that are asking, what is the Justice Department doing? They're doing lots of things, but one of the things they're doing is they're trying to try 500 people. Um, for participation at the Jan 6th insurrection. And so Guy Reffitt, and now I know why, we'll, we'll talk about it at the end. I saw the press conference with his wife. I guess you can call it a press conference. I now know why he went to trial. I asked Ben, what why this idiot would go to trial with so much evidence against him? Because he wants to be a martyr. Because they call themselves, I don't know if you caught this, they call themselves the One Sixers. Like the 76ers, they're the One Sixers. Which is, you know, again, too smart. For January six, yeah, of course, <laughs> yes, the uh, one sixers. Okay, so she, well, you know, uh, so now they're in a cute club that oh they get God. to say, yeah. So at the, uh, we'll we'll talk about the conviction today after four hours of deliberation, but we'll go first to the wife on the courthouse steps who 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 sent out a signal to all the other one sixers and said, "Don't take a plea. We need to band together." We were only expressing our First Amendment right, your First Amendment right to use a fire extinguisher on a Capitol Police officer, your First Amendment right to use bear spray um, to cause a heart attack of one of the Capitol Police, that to, to go and try to find Nancy Pelosi and drag her out by the roots of her hair. That's your First Amendment right. I mean, they are they they are still nuts. Um, and and if he doesn't come around in the June sentencing, and and he and he maintains this position of not showing any remorse. Any remorse, yeah. The judge is going to slam him and give him the max. Even though it's a Trump appointee, I looked her up, Dabney Friedrich. Um, she's she's a former U.S. attorney, assistant U.S. attorney. She got a, she was on the sentencing commission. She's got a good track record. She throws the book at him. So let's talk about what happened. So what happened today with the uh, with with the counts in the jury deliberation, Karen? Yeah. So uh, you know, it was a before. Really quick, I, I didn't understand the defense strategy. It was a it was a short opening. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're suggesting there was a defense strategy. I mean, I it's just <laughs> I've just never seen anything like it. There was like a 10 minute opening statement. They didn't put on any witnesses. No, three. Three. It was a three minute opening statement. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, I, it takes I've longer never... to make an egg. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I, I don't really understand what and and not only that. So say you want to be a martyr and that you want to make a statement and exercise your First Amendment rights. How cruel of a person can you be to put your own son through that, to make him testify against his own father? To me, that's he's a sick person yeah. who has. And, and now that you tell me, I didn't see the press conference that uh. his wife stood by him. So the mother is also like this family is has no I mean, put your family first. Do not put anything else first. I mean, these people are delusional. I can't believe it. But anyway, getting to your so wait, wait, before your, you go on the kids, I want to ask you a question. So I'm going to give you uh, I'm going to give you one one fact point, And then I want to hear from the former prosecutor that you are what you think. They put on the sun and he did really well. And while they were putting while that son was testifying at the very beginning in the open courtroom with the jury present, Guy Reffitt burst into tears and turned red-faced and sobbed during much of his testimony. They later, the prosecutors, at the end, decided not 
to put the daughter on. Why do you think that is? Because, because they have a heart because, because the prosecution has a heart and mm-hmm. they got what they needed out of the defense, out of the um, son. Right. And don't, don't, ruin this family even more. You know, first of all, this is one at before of 100 potential trials. They have a long road ahead of them. You know, they, they have a conscience and yeah. they're just not going to there's no reason to put her on and put her through that. It's yeah. got to be th- this son is he's 19 years old. He's going to be marred for life. Just having to testify against your own father and then watch your father sit there sobbing. And he wasn't the reason he was sobbing, I'm sure, was because he was disappointed, not because he felt bad, not because he has any regrets, but because he was disappointed pointed this is me just totally guessing by the way i have no you know but we I just, do that's this, what we do here on legal i know but uh, <laughs> but it just has has he that he's so disappointed that his son uh that his son is cl- is clearly sees the insurrection for what it was and is willing to come forward and do the right thing and and you know testify against your own parent. I mean, that's, I think that's just got to be the hardest, hardest thing. And I, I used to be a child abuse prosecutor. And so I know what it's like for these children, you know, and he's not an abuse victim in that, in the sense of a typical child abuse. Although I think threatening your child with a gun, if he comes forward is child abuse. I'm sure it wasn't the first time in that household. Yeah. Well, exactly. It's a, it's a very tough thing to, to, for, for psychologically for a child to, to, um, to testify against their, their father. And, you know, it takes a lot of strength and a lot of courage. And I, I applaud that, that child and really think he, he, I admire him for the courage and strength that he had that not a lot of people, not everybody has. And, uh, you know, it's a hard yeah. thing to do. I like your observation about the the prosecutor, the prosecution having a heart and also keeping something in the tank because they've got like 400 more of these, although. Th- and they clearly came- they didn't need it since what <clears throat> it was a three hour deliberation or four hour deliberation. Four so hours. Clearly, yeah. So they didn't need yeah. the daughter. They, so, they had so, a good read on their case. Yeah. So I think there's another another reason they didn't do it. They have a heart. I also think they were worried, this is just my uh, seasoned speculation, that they didn't want to also engender any sympathy with him, bursting into tears again. They, yeah. they knew they, had, they were up on points by a large margin, the way the trial was going. They didn't need the overkill or having it backfire and him screaming out, honey, I love you or something from a movie. Yeah, I agree. I agree with like, you. I agree right? with you. Like, I think that's a good that? point. Yeah, <laughs> right? no, I agree with you. So, so let the daughter go. And plus the mother, I'm sure, was not happy, as you can see from the press conference, with the daughter testifying and I'm sure made the prosecutor's life a living hell um, in that way. And, you know, the old joke plus the is the daughter tr- was a minor, right? Yeah, the daughter was a minor. And the, the son was not. So he can make yeah, his own decision. That's right. And I think the mother influenced it. And we're piecing it all together here. The, the thing that I loved about the four hour deliberation is it proves the old adage that I saw I've seen in my own career, which is um, juries never reach a verdict, even if they're going to do it quickly before lunch. They, the four they hour want the mark, free lunch, right? The four hour mark is you three, four hours is the earliest I've ever seen it. And it's after the bailiff has delivered lunch they because they, they get charged. Right. And, you know, the, the charging takes so long, you know, the reading of the and we'll talk about this on other legal legal AF midweeks, you know, the charging the, the jury instructions that the judge gives can go on for like an hour and they are like yeah. watching, you know, paint dry. And even for lawyers, I've I've almost nodded off during 
<laughs> and they're important because if they get a word wrong. They're really wrong, important. Yeah. Yeah. If they get a word wrong, yeah. you, know, you got a reversible error from the yeah. instruction. So by the time the jury's instructed, by the time they grab their pads and the bailiff takes them back to the deliberation room and reads in the riot act about what they can and can't do, you know, it's, I don't even know what, when it ended. It's getting close to, it's getting close to lunch. They bring the sandwiches. Everybody orders off a menu. This is the insider stuff that people come to the lab right? for, by the way. They get the tuna salad and they get the ham sandwich. And then they eat their sandwiches and they take a quick straw poll. And then they come out. Yeah. <laughs> and then they, then they come back 20 minutes later and say, I, so it's, all, it's, all, it's not really four hours. It's lunch plus 20 minutes of deliberation. I mean, look, just I, I've seen a 17 minute verdict. Very rare, but I've seen 17. <laughs> I've in seen the it. morning. I've also <laughs> seen I've also seen my husband had a jury out for six weeks once. I mean, it was unbelievable. And then how many the Allen charges were they? How many, oh my God. How many you charges know, were they given to continue to deliberate? You know, I don't recall, but it was six weeks. He actually missed our family vacation because we thought for wow. sure, you know, and I went and I said, oh, you'll come meet us. And he never was able to meet us. But <laughs> um, but the Maxwell, uh, the jury was out for five days. And I think, you know, a day, two days. Yeah is 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 common so i've seen three or i've been on i've been i've handled trials where you know it's between one and three days i don't think i've ever exactly. gone, to five, if, gone to five no but but three but three or, or three, three hours i've had three, three exactly hours. i, I yeah. just wanted to give the context that three hours is considered a really quick verdict in in the world of of yeah. prosecution i also didn't hear maybe because it happened so quickly i didn't hear that they that they sent out any notes at all to, to the uh, well, look, when you when you have it, I'm not kidding. When you have a three minute egg timer for your defense opening, I mean, even the play, even the prosecutor was only half an hour, given the volume of evidence. Didn't you think a half an hour was sort of short, too? I just think they had so much that they they were like, we're going to do it in half an hour. He did I mean, it in three minutes. You could have you could have uh, literally a five second gunpoint robbery, right? Someone comes up to you in a dark alley, yeah. points a gun at you, takes your wallet and runs. Right. The whole thing happens in five in five seconds. Two hour that's opening. Na- that's yeah. I was going to say that's a that's a two. That's an hour. That's an hour opening statement for a five second crime. This is I mean, the, the, the Karen, this, it takes me an hour to clear my throat. I mean, I mean, it's just it, so it's just interesting to me, yeah. you know, just to see the, to see this. And but, what you, know you make? What? I, I want to leave it on this. What from a prosecutor, former prosecutor standpoint, what do you make of the um, defense lawyer in his closing. I think that lasted four minutes, but in his closing, he conceded that his client committed a crime. It was just a misdemeanor and that everything else was puffery and bragging and he didn't really do anything and no one testified that he punched anybody and let let my let my client free. What do you think about the admitting of the misdemeanor crime? I think that's a tactic that is used and is successfully used very often uh, by defense attorneys. However, not for only you, you got to do more than four minutes. I mean, you've, you, if that is your theory and you want to say that it's it's a misdemeanor, not a felony, you know, misdemeanor being um, the exposure will be obviously less than a year in incarcerated, yeah. whereas he's facing 20 years on this felony. So so yeah. there's a reason why you you would argue that because he, he's on tape, he's on videos. You said that he had a GoPro camera where he's you know showing all, all of it. So there was no doubt he was there. So I think that was probably the only defense that that he was there, but it was he didn't mean it. And it was just it was all, you know, 
over-exaggerated and it's a misdemeanor, but then you have to methodically not only break down the government's theory, but, but put something on yourself as to why it's a misdemeanor and not a felony. You can't do that in four minutes. That's a four hour summation right there. I, maybe, I he was du- maybe he was double parked. Maybe he had to get out of the courtroom. <laughs> I don't know. But these are the types of things that you and I like talking. This is the inside baseball stuff, even though you told me earlier that you're not a sports person. It's the inside molecular level things that people come to expect from legal AF law school podcasts, midweek editions. And we've just we've just delivered another one. Uh, and we're at the end of this show. I really um, appreciate the listeners and followers. Shout out to the Midas Mighty. Always, as I've said before, and I mean it, I can't think of a better Wednesday night way to spend it than with Karen Friedman Agnifilo. I hope YouTube uh, lets us <laughs> lets us on this time. Oh, we're out of YouTube jail. We're, oh, that's right. You know, we should end it on that. We are officially out of YouTube jail. And it wasn't even us. It was our brothers, our brothers at Midas Touch who... <laughs> did nothing wrong by the way and they got and they got i think i think the midas brothers actually posted it they got a form <laughs> tweet back that said from youtube sorry you're totally right that was not consistent with our policies oops and i'm like wait a minute you and i had this amazing podcast last week and then we had a scramble with 2000 of our closest listeners and followers and go find another outlet off of YouTube. And by the way, we had our highest watched, listened to, downloaded episode of Midweek Edition since we started. I think we should create a stampede effect every show with some (laughs) sort of, we're in jail, everybody, let us out. Go meet us on on Facebook. But um, this one's gonna, this one we're dropping on YouTube. It will be shown on time this evening and then in all the other places that people get their podcasts. So thank you again. We'll see you, Karen, next Wednesday. And I'm sure we're gonna have a lot to talk about. Great to see you, Popak. You too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.